Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 56. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast. Before we get started with the interview, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. First and foremost, I just finished up a 30-day training session, so I have slots available if you're interested in personal one-on-one leadership coaching. We can do it in person if you're close enough, or we can certainly do it over the phone or via Skype. Go to doseofleadership.com and check out the coaching tab in my menu item, and you can get more information. Also, this episode is brought to you by my sponsor, audible.com. You've heard me talk about it. If you want to go ahead and get a, a free book, go to my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible or you can click on the audible trial menu item up in, on my website and you can download a free book any book that audio audible.com has over a hundred thousand titles i guarantee you're going to find a book that uh, you're wanting to get caught up on i used to wasn't a big fan of audio books never really tested them i didn't think it'd be worthwhile but i love them now they're a great way to get caught up in all your reading you're doing the yard work going to work exercising you can make your smartphone smarter go to doseofleadership.com slash audible and take advantage of the special offer that they're giving to you. So anyway, thanks again for all your support. Go to iTunes, leave a review, and um, thanks for tuning in. Well, I'm so pleased to have on my show Chris Widener. He's widely recognized as one of the top speakers in the world. He's one of my favorite speakers. He speaks all over the place and some of the who's who of all of American business organizations, including a GE, Cisco, Microsoft, Harvard Business School. He was hand-selected and mentored by two of the greatest legends in the speaking world, Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar. In fact, Zig Ziglar asked him, personally chose him to host his co-host a television show, True Performance. He's a businessman. He started a small publishing company called the American Community Business Network. He, in the 90s, he then changed the name to Made for Success and grew the company into a large business selling tens of thousands of personal development programs through the big box retailers like Costco, Sam's Club, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble. He sold that business in 2009 to focus on his writing and speaking and coaching and he is an author, 12 books, 450 articles on success, leadership, sales, motivation. You may have seen his book, his best-selling book, The Angel Inside, which has been opted, optioned for a movie, The Art of Influence, The Leadership Rules, Live the Life You've Always Dreamed Of, 12 Pillars, and the sequel to 12 Pillars. He's a professional coach and mentor, and I'm so thrilled to have him on the show. Chris, welcome to the Dose of Leadership Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, like I said, you're one of my favorite speakers. You're fun to watch. I speak on the side. I, I, I like to play a speaker on TV anyway. But uh, so I appreciate everything that you're doing, and, and I love what you talk about. You're passionate about leadership. You know, one of the things that, uh, well, let's talk about how did you get involved in speaking? What got you so passionate about leadership and speaking in general? Well, I'll tell you, it's funny. When I was 15 or 16 years old, I bought a book called Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is, How to Make a Living as a Public Speaker. So, I mean, that was 32, 33 years ago now. Um, and so even in high school, I was, I was doing the morning announcements, you know, the guy that got on and said, everybody stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the whole school right. and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then right out of college, um, I started speaking to high school, summer camps, uh, colleges, youth groups, those kinds of things. And then it just sort of evolved and became more and more focused over the years. Um, and then, uh, really focused on leadership in the late 1990s because it's what I was really passionate about, you know always a leader in in uh, sports growing up and 
captain of teams and in college I was class president and I, I really just realized I was passionate about leadership. Um, and then from there I really, really niched down uh, 2005, 2006 into influence and what it means to be influential and how you gain influence and, and why some people have influence and other people don't. You know, it's interesting when you talk about you, you know, growing up and you were kind of that natural uh, you kind of gravitated towards leadership and this and that, but uh, you were kind of a, a a problem kid early on, were you not? You, you one of your speeches I watched, you talked about your being a youth and you were kind of a handful. Yeah, I was. Um, I I got into drugs early on. I got shipped off to live with relatives. I lived in twenty eight homes and went to eleven different schools. My dad died when I was four. I started smoking weed in like sixth grade. Um, spent most of my sixth, seventh, eighth grade at Longacres Horse Track. Uh, and it was really probably only sports that really kept me from really, really going over the deep end. Yeah. And growing up, I was quarterback on football. I played catcher in baseball. I was point guard in, in basketball. And um, I was a ball boy for the Seattle Supersonics, too, by the way. Uh, so it was kind of interesting talking about leadership. One guy you should get on your podcast is the guy that was the coach of the Seattle Supersonics when I was uh, when I was a ball boy there, Lenny Wilkins, winning his coach in, in NBA history. And uh, so three nights a week, I was spending uh, I was spending uh, two or two to five hours uh, with Lenny Wilkins, and and his son Randy was actually another ball boy, and so we hung out, and we uh, when I was. Well, I guess I was 11 years old. We lost the world championship. When I was 12 years old, we won the world championship. And then at 13, uh, right after they won the world championship, I was in a ticker tape parade through downtown Seattle with a half a million people. And uh, I, I look back now and I go, man, how do you ever, how do you ever top that? Yeah. At 18, being in a ticker tape parade through downtown Seattle as part of a world championship NBA basketball team. So. It was really sports, probably, that kept me from really going over the deep end. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you have any uh, any coach that stands out at that time that was really, you know, I ask a lot of people who their mentors on, and it always goes back to a family member and and or a coach or teacher, almost always. Yeah, I, I actually had a few teachers. Um, I think the ones that I remember the most were the people who said they believed in me. Right. And I, a lot of people over the years, because there were a lot of people that didn't believe in me. I was quite a handful and, and quite a troublemaker. Uh, my my tenth grade year, I had forty seven written referrals to the principal's oh office, um, and that's not just the times I was kicked out of class to go sit in the hallway to the end of the class. Those are the times I got written up in triplicate and sent down to the principal's office forty seven times in one school year. So you know, to have some of those teachers who believed in me, um, and then after college, I had a couple of uh, extremely successful business leaders. Uh, who you know believed in me and what I was doing and and uh, supported my my mission and and some of those things and having people who believed in you was uh, really tremendous, uh, particularly when you wondered if anybody did. Yeah, it's amazing how you know belief in an individual can turn everything around. It puts a lot of emphasis and, and pressure on yourself now when you're this age and you've got the kids and you and you don't realize how just even the little nuanced things that you do can have a huge impact on somebody's lives. Yeah, I remember I was 25 years old and I was starting a nonprofit group, and uh, and I got a check from a guy who I knew, uh, who was the CEO of Mars Candies, just a little 25 billion dollar a year company, yeah. and uh, and unsolicited, I didn't ask him for the money. He sent a check and I got it, and uh, and I you know called him or wrote him and said thank you. And the next month I got another check, and uh, so I called him up. I think I called him after the second check and I said, hey, wow, this is really great. I, I didn't expect this. Appreciate it. 
And I'll never forget as long as I live, I was 25 years old and still, you know, today, 22 years later, he said, it's because I believe in you. And I remember thinking, wow, if this guy who runs one of the biggest, most successful companies in the world believes in me, maybe I actually have what it takes to be successful. And it was a real transforming moment in my life to hear somebody so successful say they believed in me. That's great. And, you know, it's, it's inspirational to hear that. And one of the things that, that I find fun about this podcast and talking to entrepreneurs, I talk to all types of people, you know, faith-based leaders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, you name it. And what's refreshing, and I've said this on a, a time or two on my podcast, that the more that you get to know people, they're no different. Even all, you look at all these successful people in we're always plagued with these limiting beliefs that like, ah, I can never be like that person. But the, the reality is you can. And the only thing that separates you from that success, I found the consistent theme is the, is the resiliency um, and the ability to bounce back from the failure. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, I always say in most of my speeches, I say uh, the difference between the successful and the unsuccessful is not the absence of obstacles, but the presence of perseverance. Right. Everybody has obstacles, but only the successful persevere through them. The unsuccessful quit. They uh, they get knocked down or they face a, a mountain that's too high and they decide not to climb it. But the people who succeed are people who make it past obstacles. And sometimes it's uh, a terrible tragedy. Sometimes it's a physical calamity. Sometimes it's a betrayal. Sometimes it's a bankruptcy. Doesn't matter. You can find people who quit because of those things, and you can find people who succeed in spite of those things. One thing I always find amazing too is is um, I, I think a lot of times where people turn it around and again, and you, sh you shared how you were kind of a a handful and troubled in the beginning. Was there a, a kind of a splat moment where you hit rock bottom, rock bottom, and you looked at yourself in the mirror and said, "Man, I don't like who I am." Is there was there one specific event that made you change? Yeah, it was actually uh, summer before my senior year of high school. I was spending uh, the night with my biggest pot-smoking buddy. And um, I grew up with no religious upbringing, no background in that kind of thing. I never went to church, nothing like that. And I uh, spent with him. I spent the night with him. It was Saturday night. And about 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, his mom barged through the door and said, Get up, we're going to Sunday school. And I literally had no idea what that was. And um, like, I've, tried, I've tried everything else. I'll try Sunday school. So uh, so off we went to this little tiny Lutheran church, Mount Si Lutheran Church, at the corner of 8th and Ogle in North Bend, Washington. And there was a youth minister there, long story short, there was a youth minister there who did two things. Uh, number one, he was a sort of a role model, male role model to me, of which I had none. My dad died when I was four. My grandpa, uh, I didn't know one of my grandpas. The other grandpa died early on. My brother uh, was sort of absent from our family. He was much older than me. He was absent for a number of years uh, um, and I really didn't have much of a relationship with him, so I really grew up with no male role model. So he was that. But then he also taught me about God and, and purpose in life and, and a grander uh, purpose for my life. And what really happened over the, the course of uh, a number of months, maybe even a year, was that I, I realized that, uh, that where I was going was nowhere and that God had a bigger plan for my life. And, uh, and here was a guy that took the time to, to mentor me and to kick me in the butt and to point me in the right direction. Awesome. You know, one of my favorite speeches that you've given recently, and it really struck with me, is you talked about, you know, what it means to be successful. And, you know, a lot of people always, you know, go to the web, they go to the books, the self-help books, and like, how do you become successful? You know, I think, first of all, you got to define what success is. I think too often we, we associate that with just the financial piece of it. But well, what you talk about in the message and what the speech that I saw is um, you talk about 
Thomas Jefferson and, and one of your famous quotes, and I'm paraphrasing, I didn't write it down, but it has something where the uh, aristocracy uh, that's inherent for every man is uh, based on his character and his skills, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, the the quote is, there's a natural aristocracy among men, the grounds of which is virtue and talent. Virtue and talent. And, and so virtue and talent, I sort of translate to character and skills. And, uh, and it's true. I mean, uh, we, but what we, what we end up doing is we tend to focus on skills. Um, in fact, one of the things I do in my seminars, I say, uh, you know, uh, how many of you have ever been to a skill-based training? And everybody raises their hands. Everybody's gone to a training or a seminar to learn what to do. Um, but very, very rarely do you find anybody who's gone to a training to learn what to be. So what happens is, is unfortunately, people go to seminars and they say, um, tell me what to do. And they rarely learn uh, the more important question, which is tell me what to be. So whether it's real estate, if they're training to be a you know successful real estate investor, they go to a seminar and they say, tell me what to do. You know, tell me how to write an offer. Tell me how to find the right properties. Tell me it's all about what to do. But what what happens is is that we fail to understand that the far more important thing is the tell me what to be. Right. So for example, um, I'll give you an example that I use. I always use the real estate example. Um, you can learn all of the right things to do, but if you don't deal with the what you what to be or who you are, you can undermine your entire career. If you don't get rid of fear, if you're if you're afraid and you don't deal with the fear, then you're never going to make an offer. You're never going to invest because you're going to be fear of loss. If you're greedy, uh, nobody's going to want to uh, to do business with you because you're going to always be trying to get get one over on them. You're not going to create win-win uh, transactions. Um, you know, all of the underlying um, character stuff can actually undermine you no matter how good you are at skills. And one of the greatest examples of this are politicians. You know, you get these highly skilled politicians who get to the highest office in the land or, or they're running for the highest office of the land, and they're undone by some character flaw. Right. They lie, cheat, steal, you know cheat on their wives, you know, what, whatever it is, and it undermines their actual ability uh, to get things done that they could do because they're extremely skilled people. Yeah, you know, the, who you are is central to the, to the, uh, the, the base of the sustaining success. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, I think you even said in that speech that I, that I like is that some, especially with you, with all the self-help and the motivations, like, tell me what I need to do to succeed. And just like you said, the skills – yeah, you got to have them, but you got to have a central solid core at the same time. I think one of the the problem, though, I think, and what I love about your stuff, though, is that you're honest, even in this interview, how you're honest about how you were and where you came from and the failings that you had early on. And I think that's important for people to understand because even though if you've got the skills and the talent, we all mess up, right? Absolutely. And and you talk about and, and and it's a word that gets overused. It was used a lot in the Marine Corps. You know, integrity was everything, right? And I've had personal failings in my life, even when I got out. And, and, and what I loved about how you asked, asked, you asked the question of the audience. You know, if you ask everybody, do you have integrity? Almost everybody's going to say yes. But the reality is, um, are we always the same person that we are, you know, pretend to be on the front? And I would argue that we're not. I know in my case, it's certainly, um, I, if you would ask me, um, before my personal failings, like, oh yeah, I got integrity, but I wasn't the same person on the, on the surface that I was behind closed doors. Right. And I think we're all a little guilty of that at some time. And I think it's okay to admit that, but, but, but we have to at least re recognize it and rectify it. Right. Am I getting that right? Yeah. In fact, it's interesting. 
um, my pastor asked me if I would uh, speak at church in a couple weeks, and uh, and I uh, my first question to him was, "You realize what you're getting yourself into here, right?" Mm-hmm. And uh, he laughed a little, and and but then they assigned me a topic. They they're doing some series, and they're asking some of the people in church to talk, and I'm like, "Yeah, sure, I'll talk. I do it for a living." Uh, but they assigned me the topic: Are Christians hypocrites? And I'm going to start out my my topic with, "Of course we are. We all are." We all recognize a standard, and we all fall short of it right? Uh, because we're imperfect. But the difference is is that successful leaders, as you mentioned, rectify, recognize and rectify. So, um, you know, you can be a great leader, and you can blow your stack. I mean, we all agree it's, it's important to not yell at your followers, right? Right, right. And yet, you know, even the best people, they get mad and they blow their stack, okay? So when you blow your stack... A great leader comes back the next day and says, you know what, I really want to apologize for that. I got angry. I shouldn't have talked that way. It's still important for us to deal with the issue, but I want to rectify the fact that I, I was inappropriate in my behavior towards you. What that does is is it builds loyalty among the people who are working Absolutely. with you. They say, oh, okay, he gets it. The, the unsuccessful leader is the guy who never rectifies it. He just lets it go. And uh, pretty soon, people get tired of getting beat up, and they go find another job, and you lose all your best people. Your best people, they say, why would I keep working here? I'm going to go somewhere else where I'm going to be treated with respect and dignity, and, and I don't have a, an abusive workplace. So, um, you know, so we all fail. Successful people understand that. They recognize it, rectify it, and restore the relationships. You know, I learned late in life, too, later in life than I probably should have, that, you know, especially when it comes to leadership, the more that a leader can be courageously authentic and vulnerable and show that vulnerability. I'm not saying to be wishy-washy, but be, there, there's great strength in vulnerability. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've been starting my speeches a lot lately with a story from college. When I was in college, we were required to do community service as part of my, as part of my college uh, experience. Every, every student in the school had to do uh, this community involvement. And some people went and worked with the elderly, and some people worked with the developmentally disabled. In Seattle, we have a huge homeless population, so I worked with um, with the homeless of Seattle. So every Saturday night, we went down to a place called the Sunshine Inn. It was run by Union Gospel Mission, and we would take sandwiches down there, and just we opened it up and let people come in. And I'll never forget when we first started out, my professor, Dr. Don Douglas, who was sort of the the professor who oversaw that particularly community particular community service thing. He said, what you'll notice is, is you'll notice that some people come in and they'll look around and rather than coming right in and eating sandwiches and eating soup and getting in off the street, they'll turn around and leave. And they'll come back 15 or 20 minutes later, but they'll have three or four other people with them. And he said, what that is, is it's one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. And the illustration that I use is, is that um, I am no smarter than anybody else, no more of a hard worker than anybody else, and I am really just one beggar telling another beggar or a group of beggars where to get food. Mm. Uh, the journey through life and success is really just figuring it out or finding it out or being taught by somebody else, and then our job is to turn around and, and tell other people. One of the things that I really don't like in the in the success world is that you get a lot of these people who try and portray themselves as, you know, super dynamic and super smart and better than everybody else. And I'm the teacher and you're the student and blah, right. blah, blah. 
And, and, you know, I know them all. Um, when I ran my Costco business, I was paying hundreds and hundreds of speakers royalty checks all the time. And, uh, and I know just about every single person in that industry. And they're all broken, failing people, right? We all are. Yeah. And yet, uh, many of them try to portray themselves as, as, you know, people with no problems and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and what I've decided in my own life is, is that authenticity really helps me connect with people where it says, hey, I'm, I'm no better than you. I've got issues. I've got problems. I've had hills to climb and valleys to go through. And uh, here's what I've learned. And some of it I've learned by experience. Some of it I've learned from other people. And here's how I can help you. And hopefully you can shorten your learning curve and not have to go through the same pains and problems that I did. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's what that's why I like your stuff. And same thing with me. I mean, I noticed some of the um, you know early on when you know, started giving speeches and presentations, you know, you, the, the natural perception was you had to, you know, sure you wanted to be the expert and be perceived as the expert. But I think once you started showing your vulnerability, your authenticity, your mistakes, that's really when the presentations and when the, and the leadership, when, when I'm in a leadership position is trying to do that too, that's when I've been most successful. You know, well, it's because uh, my wife and I, we've been married going on 25 years. This will be our 25-year anniversary. And so, for example, we would I would say this now. I'd say we've been married 24 years. It's been 20 of the best years of our lives. Uh -huh. We'll kind of go, and I've had some people go, well, how could you say that? And I'm like, well, because we've had a few bad years. Yeah. And it's almost like they're astounded that you would admit that, right? But then there's lots and lots and lots of people who go, wow. I've had marriage problems, and here's this guy who's been married for 24 years and has stuck it out and has a good marriage and, you know, great kids and all these things. He admits it, and then now you open up the conversation to talk about how to actually get through it. You know, one thing I just can't stand is people go, I've been married 37 years and we've never had a fight. I'm like, you're either lying or you don't have a real relationship. <laughs> right. You know, it's just, it's bogus to hear that kind of stuff, yeah. and yet do it. And so I've decided that uh, that that I want to be authentic and real, and um, and I, it's it's worked for me. Yeah, so. well, that's one thing I appreciate appreciate about you for sure. You know, I love how you you tackle the limiting beliefs head on, and uh, and just this morning I finished up a coaching call that I've been working with a person for the last thirty days, and. And it's fun to see, but it's the, the predominant theme in all these coaching sessions that I do or even talking is in, in, even in my own life is overcoming fear. And I talk about fear a lot in my presentations. And I know you do too. And, and, uh, how does, how do we overcome fear? I mean, I, I think it's, it's probably one of the most predominant themes that I've had to deal with on a coaching and a personal level. Well, you know, the first thing that pops into my mind is I grew up, uh, I grew up all over the Seattle area, but in high school, and throughout my time, I ended up out in this little place called the Snoqualmie Valley. And the Snoqualmie Valley is a, uh, when I was growing up, it was a timber uh, industry. Um, in fact, uh, there's uh, the TV show, well, what was the name of it? Twin Peaks was based in, in right. uh, that really weird uh, show. Twin Peaks was based in the Snoqualmie Valley. And I lived on the Snoqualmie River, or near the Snoqualmie River. And yet all these rivers running running through it, the North Fork and the South Fork and the Snoqualmie River and all this. And uh, because it was timber, they had to train the uh they had to train the trees out of there. So they'd cut them down and they'd warehouser would mill them and then they'd put them on trains or trucks and get them out of there. So there were all these train trestles going across these bridges. 
and we would jump off of these train trestles. Now, if you can imagine a train trestle, it had the train track level, which was 30 feet, and then it had the, the part that goes up and across, you know, the, the sort of the, the part that holds it up, I guess, the suspension part, and that was always 60 feet. And, uh, you, you know, the first time you jump off that bridge, we jumped in, you know, we were always jumping in the Snoqualmie River. Every now and then on a sunny day, I'll take my motorcycle up during the summer and I'll drive by the, the train trestles and there's a new generation of kids jumping off the train trestles. Uh, but you would walk up there, you'd walk out and you'd stand at the edge and of course you were afraid. And yet really what it came down to was you put one foot in front of the other. <laughs> Eventually you literally, it was as simple as that. You had to step off the bridge and you know you can you can give me any example or illustration of even the most intricate business deals and that kind of stuff but eventually you have to sign the contract or eventually you have to you know take the step and do it and I think it's one of the things that has made me pretty successful is that I'm literally just willing to do it and I know a lot of people who think and think and think and think and think and think and think and, think, and they just never do it um, and they're always planning on doing it, uh, but they just never do it. And, and in my mind, literally the most important thing about overcoming fear is just doing something. Yeah. And if you don't, you can think and analyze and question and, and you'll just never do it. And ultimately you're going to have to do it sometime. And, um, it may be very, very, very simplistic, but ultimately it's about doing it. Yeah, you know what? It's funny too. Is like fear even masks itself in insidious ways. I even um, so often you think of all these things that you plan that you want to do, and then you procrastinate. I don't care if it's writing another article or starting a new website or starting a podcast or doing whatever it is. I found myself I'm going to do these things, but then I would make excuse, you know, almost unconsciously make excuses. I'd go do something else. Oh, I got to go mow the lawn right now. Oh, I got to do that. And when you really chip it away at it, that really is fear kind of eating away. And you, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, pe very successful people, and they've said the same thing is that it's funny how you procrastinate and you find other things to do instead of the really, the, the stuff you know that needs to get done. Did you, did you find yourself that way too? Have you, obviously you've conquered some of that, but would you agree with some of that? I would agree with it. It's, it's never really been my problem. I mean, I certainly have more than my fair share of problems, but, uh, if anything, I'm probably on the other side. I probably, I probably do too much and too easily, uh, take on and that kind of stuff. I've always been pretty bold. Uh, you know, when I was, when I was about 15 years old, this, uh, friend of my mom's, he worked in the filing department at Group Health Hospital. Somehow he scraped together some money, I think from a rich uncle, to buy the license to a self-watering flower pot. And it was a plastic uh, flower pot, and it had a little dial on it, and you put water in the bottom, and the dial determined how much water it would suck up through a, a patented uh, uh, sort of a nipple kind of thing that went from the top part, the flower part, down into the, the water retainer uh, basin, uh, reservoir, whatever. And anyway, he asked me if I'd want to sell it, and I said, uh, sure, I'll sell it. Well, he thought I was going to go door to door and he was going to pay me, I don't know, a buck a piece or something like that. And, uh, and so he, he got me all set up and he gave me a box with a bunch of different colors in it. And I never once knocked on a door. The only thing I did was I called Ernst Home Centers, which was, at the time was a precursor to Home Depot. And they, I think they probably had a hundred stores in Washington and Oregon. And, uh, I called up Ernst Home Centers and I asked to talk to a buyer. 
and uh, I scheduled an appointment, and I, I know that I wasn't 16 because my mom had to drop me off at the appointment in downtown Seattle, and uh, so she uh, she drops me off. I walked in there, and I walked out with a deal for uh, four boxes per month for 20 of their stores for a year. It was a test trial. I went back to this guy, and I said, look, here's the deal. I just signed this. All you have to do is sign this contract. He got so scared to death, he literally went back to the company and said, I want my money back. I don't want the license anymore. Wow. He wasn't even going to have to do anything. They would drop the stores. But, you know, here was this 15-year-old kid who was bold and walked in and said, I want to do this deal and cut it with a 40-year-old guy. You know, I think there was 20 in a box, so there was 80 per store. So I was selling 1600 a month for a year. So I got a deal for about 20000 uh, 20,000 of these things. And the guy, you know, it would have paid for my college, right? Right. And this guy was scared again. He was making more than a buck a box. He was making, or a buck a, a deal. He was making more than I was. And he just couldn't get himself to do it. Wow. And so canceled his business because he didn't want to do that kind of business. He would rather, he would have been comfortable with me going door to door and selling one or two at a time, but he, he wasn't comfortable selling 20,000 at a time. That's amazing. And it was just a matter of being bold and overcoming your fear. Yeah. Yeah, I think just doing something. I think you, you're right. I mean, being bold is is the key to it. And, um, you know, and wondering why we don't, why we're not more bold. I guess we're fear of failing, I guess, or fear of the responsibility, just like in your case of that, that, that guy there. What, what was he afraid of, you know? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's always interesting to no. me. People are fear, fearful of a lot of things, fear of success, fear of money, uh, fear of failure. Fear of what other people will think of them. Uh, there's all sorts of things. You know, one of my favorite articles that you have on your website is Avoiding the Dad Wound. Talk to me about that. I love that article. Well, it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, it was a guy from Cisco Systems who told me this. Uh, he told me this story. He said uh, when he first became a sales manager, and he's long gone from Cisco. He's in a, another big company now. But when he first became a sales manager and started uh, hiring salespeople, uh, he went to his like senior vice president and said, you know, what should I look for? Good communicators or disciplined or, you know, whatever. And the guy told him this really sick and twisted story. Uh, it, and, and yet it, there's a sliver of truth in, truth in there that's really interesting. He said, um, he said, no, 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 no. Those things are all great, but what you really want to look for, and he taught them an interview technique. You know, you ask them about their schooling, and he, and then you, you say, you know, tell me about your family growing up, and, and then he said, tell me about your siblings, and he said, we're all, all of this is just precursor to what we're really looking for. And he said, then, he said, then ask, say, what about your mom? Tell me about your mom. And then he said, you know, that's, that's great. It's all just part of, you know, you're getting, you're getting to the real part that's going to determine. Then he says, here's the pivotal question. Tell me about your dad. What was your relationship like with your dad? And he said, and this guy tells this friend of mine, he says, then you listen for the dad wound. Mm -hmm. Says, yeah, you listen for people whose dads didn't like them and they were never good enough. And I mean, in, if you think about it, it's really sick and twisted. But he said, here's the deal. People whose dads didn't like them or didn't approve of them, those people will work until the end of, you know, till the end of the earth. They'll crawl over crushed glass. They'll, you know, whatever. They'll, 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 they'll go and they'll go and they'll go because they're seeking this approval from somebody. Now, 
there's the sick part of it, but then there's also the, the, the part that's really true, is that people, you know, they want approval. They're looking for somebody who will approve of them and, and, will, and will say, good job. And I wrote that article, The Dad Wound, and it's interesting to me. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget as long as I live, this, this woman wrote to me after I first wrote that article, and she said, you know, thank you so much for this article. And she said, my sister and I read it together. I read it first and I sent it to her. She said, we read it. And she said, my sister and I realized at the time, this was 10 years ago or so, they were in their 40s. And she said, we've been trying to gain our dad's approval for over 30 years. And, and she said, and the really sad part is he's been dead for 20. Oh, man. And, and yet he, these two women, they realized they'd been on this quest to, uh, to, to gain approval of a man who was no longer even alive. And so what it really teaches me or, or helps me really realize is, is this deep need for approval and, and appreciation and, and all these things that, um, that, that we as leaders can give to people in a, in a proper relationship and in a right relationship. And, um, and people, uh, they crave it. They need it. Now, as a dad, it's one of the things that I always wanted to make sure, you know, that I gave to my kids was understanding that I'm proud of them and, you know, my kids are older now, and but I still tell them that I, I love them, I appreciate them, I'm a proud of them, um, you know, and, and trying to make sure that they get that and understand that because I don't want them trying to, you know, trying to spend all this emotional, psychic energy trying to gain it from somebody when, uh, when they can have it from me. It's a really important relationship that a lot of us don't really understand. Yeah, no, it's a great article, and I mean, it's so true. I mean, you look back at the you know, all the relationships, both personally and people that you know, and it, it does go back to that. I thought it was interesting in the article. I never knew that, but you, you mentioned where Ted Turner had got the Man of the Year Award and he held up the article or the magazine cover and said, is this enough, Dad, or something like that? Or I just that's amazing. Like that, yeah. So that's just amazing. Are you still there, Chris? I am. Oh, okay. Thought I lost you there. Well, Chris, guys, you're you're a huge fan of I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours. I love your stuff. I love your books. I love your speeches. Um, you're one of the one of the greats out there. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. I mean, I really appreciate your stuff. I'm glad you came on the show. Where can people find you? They can find me at www.chriswidener.com. That's C H R I S W I D E N E R dot com. Uh, that's one place they can find me. They can find me on Twitter at Chris Widener. Uh, certainly on Facebook, they can find me there. Uh, and then I just started a new uh, a new site maybe six seven months ago now called Twelve Coaches, and it's the word twelve T W E L V E Coaches dot com. I put together a, uh, a site with eleven other business leaders, and uh, we are uh, teaching people all the different aspects of business from leadership to technology to uh, customer service to sales to marketing, you know, all these different things. And uh, it's a really exciting website, but they can find me at chriswidener.com or they can find me at 12coaches.com or Twitter, Facebook. All right. I'll have links to all that when I get the post up, but uh, go check him out, folks. He's one of the good ones. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook. 
a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.